we're following the life of Moses and we're looking at this theme of uh, responding and overcoming rejection. And today's a little bit of another angle on it. It's not as much of a focus on rejection, but it's a focus on something else that was helping Moses. And so let's look in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. We'll read this. And again, we're going to see how there's wealth found in the desert. Wealth found in the desert here. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 is all we'll read right now. It says, Moses, now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Oreb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from, <clears throat> from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Notice verse 1. Describing Moses, what he's doing, where he's at, verse 1 again, Moses kept the flock of Jethro's father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Notice it says he led the flock to the backside of the desert. The backside of the desert. So we're all in the desert, right? We're just developing it. And if you get further away from us, where it's less people around, it'd be considered the backside of the desert. Um, if you, if you think of, some of us remember your geography here. You got, uh, you got uh, southwest of Israel here is Africa and Egypt. Between Africa, the major northeast part of the continent, and Israel, there at the east end of the Mediterranean is that Sinai Peninsula bordering the transitional spot between Israel and Egypt. Moses has been in Egypt Southwest, the promised land is northeast. In between them is a Sinai Peninsula that comes down like that. The Sinai Peninsula at the very bottom of the tip would be where Moses was. That's where they think Mount Sinai was. When you're going from the southwest, from Egypt, going north and east into Israel, you're passing the face of the desert and you're going into Israel. And if you look to the south, Looking down at the Sinai Peninsula, way, way back, it's the backside of the desert. Moses was in the backside of the desert. He was in a desert spot. You know, um, in, what is it, the lowest elevation in the United States is, uh, what is it, Death Valley? Death Valley. <clears throat> and um, they found, somebody found, I don't know if it was the last 40, 50 years, somebody found a treasure chest there. It was in like one of the caves or something nearby. Literally, it was an old, I mean, it was like, a, it was literally a treasure chest. And um, 
they opened it up and they found it was from the days of the gold rush days, probably you know, mid-1800s. The gold rush days in California, somebody going through there, they had some gold, there's some coins and some other things that pertain to the day. I think there was a Bible or something in there. They buried it and put it in a cave. They probably thought, well, we need to come back and get it. And they never either, they forgot where it was at or they died or whatever. Somebody in the last 40, 50 years discovered it. Something there in the desert. You go to, you go to, you go to Death Valley, it doesn't look like a place you'd want to hang out, right? No. <laughs> like, look at this, Death Valley. I want to get out of death, right? But some found in a place that you wouldn't think you'd find something good. They found a treasure. Um, there's a historian, Arizona historian named Marshall Trimble. I don't know if he's still alive, but I have a few of his books. He's very interesting reading his books and then even hearing him give speeches about Arizona history. And he knows all the different history in Arizona. You know, we're a Western, uh, we're out West here and we had we had, a, we had the Spaniards came here for a while, then you have Native Americans, and then uh, 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 Mexicans had part of the state at one point, and then we came here and, and uh, had the purchased half, front, top half of the state, and then the bottom half of the state, and he knows all the history of that. And people that came out here looking for gold, and then there was some conflicts with Native Americans at different times, and, but he, ha- he tells stories about finding gold and buried treasure. And there's been times where people have found, like for, this is an example, there was a time where some guys, they noticed a, a Native American guy, this was probably 200 years ago or something, uh, maybe, yeah, about 200, maybe 250 years ago, noticed a guy coming, and it was in the Phoenix area, a Native American came down into the Phoenix area, bought some stuff at, you know, at, a, at a market or something, and they were watching, they noticed he used gold, they had the gold nuggets. And so a couple of these guys followed him. Where's he going to go? Where did he get that gold? And they lost track of him, but they ended up finding some canyon somewhere up like east of Black Canyon City. And they started snooping around. And they found an area where there's some gold veins. They're like, yes, you know. And so they start digging and they, put, they start filling their bag with some preliminary stuff and trying to think where the spot is. And as they're leaving, this, this, per, this man's tribe came in and, and, and started to attack and and uh, one guy died, the other guy hid himself, and they couldn't find him, and then he ended up escaping, and, and he thought, well, before I escape, I'm going to put a mark the territory, and I got my, I got my uh, prospector's axe, and he put his prospector's axe in a cactus, and, and then he took off. He had a little bit of gold still, and he had made his way to San Francisco for whatever reason, and uh, found how much the gold was, and the, the amount that it would represent per ton, Somebody uh, evaluated it, and, and he never was able to get back to this area. And on his deathbed, when he was like 80 years old, he tells the story. He never told anybody this story. He tells the story. He's like, I found this. Me and this other guy, he died. There's gold there. We, there's a lot more. And he, and he said he's never able to get back. And, then some, and so nobody knows what happened with that. <laughs> and so people, my whole point is this. There's been, out here in Arizona... Um, there's treasures in the desert in some places. You might fall in a mine. That's not good. But the, have you heard of the Rosetta Stone? Not the language program. The language program came from an actual stone, which was found in Egypt. It was, probably wasn't exactly desert, desert. It was near it. And in the late 1700s, the French were in there from Napoleon trying to dominate Egypt. And 
when they're doing some construction or something, they found this unique stone. And it was broken up. It's not the full stone. The, the, the story, to make it short, the story of the Rosetta Stone is a stone. It's like, I think it's three feet like this by this and 11 inches thick, have very heavy. And the, the issue was when they saw it, the British ended up taking it. Um, it had three languages on it, two uh, like a hieroglyphic and some other kind of uh, Egyptian language, two, two types of Egyptian languages. And then the third one was Greek. And they thought, there's something to this. They thought, we can't, because the problem was, they can't figure out, you know, a lot of the Westerners couldn't figure out this Egyptian language and this hieroglyphic and the, the ancient... Um, the ancient writings that we've been exploring, they, they don't, what is this stuff saying? And nobody could quite figure it out. But when they found the Rosetta Stone, they said, well, we know Greek. And they started looking. It was, a, it was a trilingual stone. It was a decree in this first Egyptian language, a decree in the second Egyptian language, and the same decree in the Greek. And they started studying it, studying it, studying it, studying it, and they cracked the code. They said, ah, we know him. We can decipher the hieroglyphics now because of the, the Greek bridge to this, to that. And so now they went back and like, okay, now we know what they're saying. And what they realized is we found quite a treasure here buried in this relatively desert area. Sometimes, so Moses was in a desert. He went from being near a river Man, if they had jet skis, he could go jet skiing. He went from being near some lush, and he went from being around a lot of people, and he went from being in a wealthy scenario, and in a scenario where he had some power too, to being a scenario where he really doesn't have much power. He doesn't have many people around him anymore. He doesn't have water as much. He can't go swimming on the Nile and he probably has different food. He called it a strange land. He went from lush to desert type life. He went from pe having a lot of people around, plenty of relationships and power, to having a few relationships and small amount of power. He it was in a desert spot. He was in a desert phase. His first years, his first 40, he lived 120. His first 40 years born and raised in Egypt. And it was a, from what we can tell, a, you know, a, a well-accommodated life. And then he has this crisis where he, as we told, he realized in some way, God put it in his heart to some extent that he was meant to start delivering these Hebrews. And he tried to do it. And they rejected him. He tried to intervene for these Hebrews at age 40. And they said, get away, who made you a judge over us? And so he gets rejected by the Hebrews whom ethnically he's related to. And then he finds out the Pharaoh reject, is chasing him down, wanting to kill him because he had killed an Egyptian who was abusing a Hebrew. So next thing you know, his life is changing drastically within a few days. And he runs. He flees going from west in, in Egypt to east through the Sinai Peninsula, keeping going east past that just over right into the western edge of Saudi Arabia, which is more desert, what they called Midian. He was with, in the, he was, uh, with uh, the land of Midian. And so he goes from, uh, look this way, Egypt to Midian, and drastic life change for 40 years. And his life's different. 
Some of us, we, some of us are, uh, we think, am I, am I like Moses? Maybe ask yourself, am I in a desert place? I'm not talking about, obviously, this is. I'm talking about like barren. It's a little bit more barren than you'd want it to be. It's a little bit more undeveloped than you'd like it to be. Maybe than what it used to be. My life used to be more green in these areas, but now it's pretty plain and barren. Now, I had these years of this, but now it's, it's plain. It's, it seems like it's almost a wasteland. Is your life barren, seemingly undeveloped? That's how Moses was. Look what it, again, it says he was in the backside of the desert. Now, when he wasn't in the backside of the desert, he was on another side of the desert. He was still in the desert when he was around his father-in-law, which was in Midian. He was in a couple different spots, but it was desert. God, it's interesting, God has, um, in the Bible, if you know the Bible, it's interesting, God uses the desert, right? There's people in the Bible, I didn't, I didn't do a thorough study, I just pulled off the top of my head this morning, but I know there's more than what I'll tell you. Moses, God sent him to the desert for some good things and brought him out. Elijah, for a time. Or wilderness, I'll use them interchangeably. Sent him in, brought him out. The Lord Jesus spent 40 days there, not to get anything good, but to prove the good that he already was. It was proving him. The Apostle Paul spent some time in the desert, it says, after he was saved. John the Revelator spent time on Patmos, which might as well have been a desert. I think it it used to be a prison colony. And then John the Baptist, backing up a little bit, was raised in the wilderness. And God sometimes uses desert stages in a person's life to help them mine treasures that you'd otherwise not find in a regular life. I see four in Moses' life. Four treasures found in his desert. Let's look at them. We'll look at them, and that'll be how I spend our time. Again, the idea is for me, I need to learn to accept. If I'm in a desert type phase in my life, or I go into, and I'm trusting God, then I'm going to say, God, you must have me here because I'm going to dig up something in the meantime. Number one, we see the first valuable asset, first of one of four valuable assets I see in the text that he gains a few simple relationships. Let's back up into chapter 2. Think of Moses, chapter 2, verse 34. Pardon me, verse, there's no 34. Chapter 2, verse 15. This is on his way out. Moses, Pharaoh heard about this thing. Pharaoh heard about Moses uh, defending a Hebrew and killing an Egyptian. He sought to slay Moses, verse 15, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. That would be the western edge of Saudi Arabia, bordering there to the Sinai Peninsula. He dwelt in the land of Midian, sat down by a well. Remember this? He leaves. Whoa, I'm getting away from him. Sits down by a well and then out there. Then he, I'll fast forward a little bit, sees, you know, these ladies come in to water the flock of their dad, Jethro, his future father-in-law. 
and they're trying to water the flock. They fill the troughs. These shepherds come in and bully them. Yeah, get out of here, ladies. Oh, thanks for filling these. And Moses stands up and defends his future sister-in-law and wife, one wife there, gets the shepherds away, lets them have their flock watered, basically sits back down. The girls go home. The girls go home and, and the dad says, how did you get here so soon? They said, well, this Egyptian helped us. He still looked Egyptian. This Egyptian guy helped us. Well, why didn't you bring him home? Where is he? Come back. Tell him to come back. We want to feed him. You know, so they go back and get him and, and he comes back and he sits down and he begins, look what the Bible says there, verse, uh, verse 20, where is he? He said unto his daughters, verse 20, where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses, verse 21, here we go. It's going quickly. Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter, and she bare him a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. That just quickly described family life getting going. So 40 years in Egypt, a, uh, a rich life, rejected. Now he's in this barren place. But one of the first things he gets is just a little family. Just a few simple relationships, right? They don't see of any other friends. Well, they have some. They go like this. Nah. You know. But we only know is his father-in-law. There were some sister-in-laws. Maybe they got married and left. Who knows? But he may know he had a father-in-law. He had his wife, and he starts to have one son. The second son comes later after he returns to Egypt. And that's it. And that's precious. Sometimes it's precious to just have um, a few simple relationships. Listen, a few simple relationships can make life bearable. You don't have to have tons of friends. You don't have to have a lot of likes. Just a few friends. If you don't have one yet here, come tell me. All right, but a few. That, what I'm trying to say is, if you're like, man, I my life, I'm already a Moses. I can't stand this desert life. Well, just look, see. Do you got a friend? You got a spouse? You got somebody? Be happy with that right now. That helps. That helps. It helps you get through the desert. A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs seventeen seventeen. A few simple relationships can make life valuable and it can make desert life bearable i see that with moses by the way he i think he savored his his relationship even with his father-in-law the bible says there that um, verse 21 he was content to dwell with the man so he he's for some length of time he lived with near his in-laws or with them it says with he lived with them maybe as in the area he probably saw his own tent and then even when he leaves and he's taking care of he's taking care of his sheep later on he's probably a couple hundred miles away. It's still identified with his father-in-law. They're his father-in-law's sheep. And then fast forward years, some years later, I don't know how many. Now Moses, picture this: he has he delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. He's got a bunch of them, one or two million people. And his father-in-law comes to visit. There was a temporary time where he sent his wife and two boys back. Father-in-law comes with his wife, Moses' wife, his two sons. 
and he welcomes him. Come on in. And when he welcomes him, father-in-law looks around, looks how he's running the business. He says, oh, Moses, you're going to wear yourself out. And father-in-law gives him some business advice in Exodus 18. I'm just giving you a quick sketch that he had a father-in-law. He had his wife. He had a boy, another boy later, and it helped him. It's good. To, again, I don't, don't, I know you got, some of us, you have your friends on your media and all that stuff. Value who's near you. Who's close to you. This stuff's a little, the stuff on our, our, our Facebook stuff and whatever else media you got, it's, it's okay. It's got a place. But it's the organic relationships are the best, right? Just like some of us think the organic food's the best. Just most expensive, right? Organic relationships are good. They help us. This is good. I mean, here he is. There he is, Moses. You're all right there. You're not, you didn't stave in the well by yourself. Ah, you got yourself a little wife. Got yourself a son. And <laughs> all right. So from verse 22, when he named, actually even before that, from verse 21 to chapter 3, verse 1 is 40 years. But he's got... Something that helped him through that. Number two, we see another valuable asset that, gained, that Moses gained in the wilderness that we can also, that is in the desert, is waiting can be valuable. Waiting can be very valuable. Let me stop a second. I had, when I was, I don't know, it was probably eighth grade, ninth grade, I bought a, I don't remember what year it was, but it's Joe Montana's rookie football card. What year would he have been a rookie? I don't even remember. 80-something, 84, I don't know what it is. Huh? 70-something, I don't know. It was a Topps Joe Montana rookie card. My friend had it. <clears throat> My friend had the card. <clears throat> we were doing cards. I was like 6th, <clears> 7th, <throat> 8th grade. We did some cards. <clears throat> and uh, he had it. I said, hey, you want to sell it to me? He goes, yeah. How much? You know, five bucks? I think it was worth five bucks at the time. Okay? Late 80s, mid to late 80s. Worth five bucks. I said, I'll buy it off you. Okay. Bought it off him for five bucks. Kept it in the card case and everything. And uh, I saved, it was about four, five years later, he had won a couple more Super Bowls and all that. And I think it was my brother-in-law and I were at Park and Swap selling stuff, and I brought my cards with me. I think I was a freshman in college, probably like 92, 93. And I was like, I'm willing to sell this. And it was, the, the value I think was 120 bucks at the time on a, it's called a Beckett, it's a, a valuation of cards. I sold it for 110 bucks. That's pretty good. Yesterday, I was in a card shop with my boys up the street. I saw the same card. It said 180 bucks. I'm like, that's not bad. It didn't go up much more since I sold it. <laughs> you know? And so 110 bucks that I sold, so I made $105 off of it. I was all happy about it. Waited, just waited a little bit, and it gained value. Sometimes waiting helps you that certain things gain value. Okay. What's happening here with Moses? So here he is, chapter 3, verse 1. He's keeping a flock. All right, man, taking care of the sheep. What was happening 40 years earlier? He tried to be like, I'm going to save you Hebrews, all these Egyptians abusing you. I'm going to help you guys. And he helps the one guy. The next day he tries to stop a fight between the other two. They say, get out of my face, man. That's what they basically did. So he leaves 40 years later. They weren't ready. These people were slaves. The Bible says they're making brick and they're working all the time and they're like, oh, this is hard. Ugh. And they're fighting with each other and then the Egyptians were whipping them. It was a horrible life. He tried to help them and they didn't want it. They didn't want his help. 
They were slaves and they didn't even realize how bad it was. By the way, some people are like that. Some people, they can't stop sinning. Sin is what they eat. Sin is what they drink. Sin is what they breathe. And they can't stop. And that's not the worst part. The worst part is they don't realize how bad they are before God. That they're the devil's slave, they're sin slave, and they're headed for a lake of fire. They don't see it. They don't see that Jesus Christ is their Moses. It takes a little time. It takes a little conviction. That's what Jesus Christ is, by the way. He's here to save me, not from my hard life right now, but from the sin that I've, I've sinned, and I am a sinner, and I need to be forgiven of it and released and saved by my heavenly Moses. And so here they are. They, were, they pushed him away, so he's like, okay. And so 40 years later, what does it say, though? It says, in the meantime, they were getting ready. Chapter 2, verse 21, verse 23, chapter 2, 23. While Moses was in the desert waiting, it says it came to pass in the process of time. The king of Egypt had died. The children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. It's almost like they finally say, okay, God, please help us. Ah, now they're ready. Well, Moses had been waiting in the wilderness for them to be ready, and ironically, now it tells you, oh, by the way, there's this guy, chapter 3, verse 1, who's hanging out in the wilderness by Mount Sinai keeping sheep. I think he's qualified to come back and save you all. What I'm saying is Moses had to, they weren't ready for his deliverance, so Moses was waiting on that. Now God connects them together. Quickly, I'm going to read Psalm 62, verse 5. Psalm 62, verse 5, about waiting. Right, let's read verse 1 first, Psalm 62, 1. Truly my soul waiteth upon God. From Him cometh my salvation. Verse 5, my soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. The waiting here of the psalmist is we can relate with. Saul, Moses in the wilderness, he's waiting, passing the time. So there's value in his relationship, the few simple relationships. There's value in him waiting. Even if he said, I'm not, I know I need to deliver these people. They weren't ready. It just wouldn't have worked. And, and God, I know God can go in and make them change their mind and make, but God just lets people do things. You notice that? I still believe in a God of sovereignty and a God of free will. And he's letting them. Okay. All right. Number two, waiting becomes valuable. Number three, his work becomes valuable. What? This is not valuable work. Chapter 3, verse 1. Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Oreb. This cannot be valuable. Moses, Moses, did you know Josephus, he was a Jewish historian, they say, he says, that Moses was a leader even in the Egyptian army in his first 40 years and went out to war. We don't know if that's true. But, it, but, in the New Testament, it says Moses was a man mighty in words and deeds when he was an Egyptian. 
So there was some kind of strength and flexing of Moses while he was an Egyptian, of power. He could speak better than he eventually can't speak much after 40 years in the wilderness. He could speak better when he was an Egyptian, and he had some might. And now he has a job change. And now his job change is not just keeping sheep. Well, wait, keeping sheep. That's what, let's just say, stop on that part. He's keeping sheep. How many of us hung around sheep longer than five minutes? Anybody ever been around sheep longer than five minutes? All right. Anybody else? Five sheep? Okay, if you start mingling around sheep, this is what can happen. You'll be around sheep. Now, they'll, they'll learn to follow you. They get used to their voice, just like Jesus says. But if, like, you fall down and hit your head on something, boom, you're like, oh, and you're bleeding like the pastor from the attic, you know? And they'll just be like, nah. They don't care. They're disinterested. I mean, if, you're, if you run and you fall on a stick and you're like, oh, you're impaled out in the, out in the, out in the pasture, they'll just be like, they'll just look at you. They won't even be as good as your dog. Your dog will be like, you know, lick and then go run. Go, lassie, go get help, you know, type of thing. And so, but he's just taking care of sheep, and they're just like, they, they're just sheep. They, they, they follow you and to some extent, and you got to work with them and get all the junk out of their hair and nose and backside. And, but they don't care about you. They're just like, nah. So he's taking care of sheep from taking care of whatever else. He's down there taking care of sheep. It's not just that. They're not even his sheep. They don't belong to him. They're his father-in-law's. Hey, man, you working for your father-in-law? Yeah. Maybe if his buddies from Egypt come visit. Hey, let's go see Moses, man. Let's go get around our chariot. Moses, what's up? They pull up in their chariot. What's up? You taking care of sheep? Yeah, yeah, guys. guys. Man, those are pretty cool sheep you have. Oh, they're not even my sheep. They're... You're working for your, what? You're working for your father-in-law? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? I mean, this is humble. It's work. It seems humbling, doesn't it? Taking care of sheep, working for his father-in-law, the sheep don't belong to him. And then, and not only that, he's in the, not just in the desert, he's in the backside of the desert. Man, this isn't even nice around here, Moses. What do your sheep eat, man? What are they eating? Dirt? Maybe that's what his buddies were saying. And then, you know, they're, they're chewing up whatever they can find. But you know what? This work was perfect. This is exactly what was training him. You see... He was taking care of sheep. That's what God's people were called. And he, they weren't his sheep. Right. When he takes care of the children of Israel pretty soon, they're not his. In fact, a few times he appealed to God, God, what are you going to do about these people? They want to kill me. He had constantly, God, these are your people. I'm just stepping in. And he was used to that because he was doing that for the same for his father-in-law. Hey, Jethro, your sheep here. What do you want me to do here? He was taking care of sheep, that's, God's, that's like God's people. He was taking care of sheep that weren't even his, that's how it will be with God's people. And he would be in the desert, he was already training in the desert, that's where he was going to take God's people. And not only that, he was by this mountain called Oreb, which we know as Sinai. When he first works, when we first meet him on the job, he's going to go back to the same spot, except not with that kind of sheep, but with God's sheep, massive amounts to him. I know this place, folks. Don't worry about it. I, I, I don't need the GPS. I've been here. And he's bringing everybody back by the Mount Oreb again. He's been there already. And he'll hear, get the Ten Commandments, and he'll get them situated. God's preparing. God's making his work meaningful. 
he probably thought, what am I doing here? And then later on in this chapter, God says, I'm going to show you, you're going to come back here with these people. Isn't that neat? How God can bring things full circle? Just, I don't, I, I don't have your life sorted. I don't even have mine all the way sorted. But think, whatever I'm doing right now, if I know God's in me, if I know God's led me to do what I'm doing right now, there's got to be something redeemable in that. Huh? I mean, if we're going to just follow the Bible as a guide, we see there's something redeemable in what Moses was doing here. And he probably didn't see it yet. And sometimes it might take a little longer to find, I mean, what kind of work do you do? You don't have to tell me out loud. What's your work now? Do you think that perhaps God's showing you going to complete some other purpose through that? Maybe soon, maybe later. I remember working with for my dad. I mean, as a side note, I remember for years working for my dad, running a shop. And, and uh, dad would be gone sometimes most of the day because he had another job at the General Rose Proving Grounds. And I was in the meantime, like, I want to be a pastor, I want to be a pastor. And I, and I just, uh, I, had, I was privileged to be assistant pastor and stuff here with my father-in-law. But there was a while I was like, man, I just really want to be a pastor. I just really want to. And I just, God's time wasn't yet. And so, but I remember after a while, when I finally became my father-in-law here, we transitioned the small church. As I was transitioning and becoming the pastor, there were certain things immediately I was able to do because I was work because I knew some business with my dad. And there were some needs behind the scene business-wise, organizationally, even though it's a small church. There were some business-type things that we needed to address that right away I could go, oh, I can take care of that, I can take care of that, I can take care of that, and that, and that. And kind of, and I'm, not, I'm not an expert, but there were some basic skills that I'd already learned with my dad that right away helped the church. And I thought, well, there was a purpose in that. I mean, there was many purposes in that. But his work became valuable. Your work, say, like, God, I'm following you, Lord. So whatever you got me doing, you're just going to have to make, I guess there's something special in this until you show me otherwise. That's Moses. He finds that there's a valuable asset gained in his desert. And then the last of all, the worship. There was value in his worship here. Now, I don't know, to be honest, I don't know what he did by way of seeking the Lord up to this chapter. I'm not sure. I, I believe he knew the Lord because he had already, we have hints of that in some other scriptures. But right at this point, he is keenly alert to the Lord. Now watch this. What happens when you go out, follow me here. Uh, can somebody turn on the fan? Do you want to turn on that fan, brother? Adam on the AC, thank you. Let's think about being literally in the desert, okay? I, I kind of like it. Well, this time of year, because it's not hot. What happens if you go out in the desert? You're like, Man, it's quiet out here. You don't even know. You didn't even like. I didn't realize. I didn't know what quiet was. I mean, especially me. I mean, there's always noise wherever I go, my kids and stuff. But you go out in the desert. Like, wow, this is quiet. And then, if you spend any time like in the desert or you know away from the city, you start becoming attuned. To, I mean, you put your phone away and all that stuff. You start noticing stuff. You're like, oh, look at that little. Look at that butterfly, you know. Or you're like, oh, look at that woodpecker. It's all quiet. And, like, and then at night, you're like, what's that noise? <laughs> the skunk around here? I don't, care about the, I don't care about the mountain lions. It's the skunks I'm afraid of, right? 
what happens? You start noticing things you didn't notice when you're in the city or sounds that you wouldn't notice in town. You start tuning in, right? So he's, he is out of the hustle and bustle of Egypt. And he's probably highly tuned. He hears a noise. He sees something different. I mean, he would notice different things because at this point it's all kind of barren and like, oh, there's something over there. He's attuned to things because the other complexities and hustle and bustles away. And now he's tuned in. Now watch what the Bible says in chapter 3, verse 2. The Lord, the angel of the Lord, verse 2, appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Now I want to just quickly say the angel of the Lord, I think what this is saying, it's a flame is God's say, this is my angel, this is my messenger. God is the personality here, not an angelic being. God is the personality here. It's like, here, let me send you my message. Here's my Marco Polo. Here's my text. Here's my whatever. That's my angel. Here's God's angel, this flame fire. And so Moses is going through the desert, and he's like, oh, that bush is on fire. Maybe he'd seen that before. But then he's thinking, wait a minute, I don't hear it crackling. I don't see any smoke. It's not turning black. I still see the bush, and I still see the flame. Nothing's changing. I'm gonna, see, he says, look what the Bible says. Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. By the way, as a side note, poor Moses, he had nobody to talk to. He had talked to himself. <laughs> I'm going to turn aside and see why this bush isn't burnt. Do you hear that, Orville? All right. Anyways, he, 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 he said, I'm going to go look at this. He didn't say, I'm going to turn aside and see why there's a flame or why it's burning. I'm going to see why it's not burnt. He's like, something's different here. He's tuned in to God. He goes over to the bush. When he starts approaching it, God says, you're not just coming to me, you're coming to a holy God. Take off your shoes. You don't just come as you will. Draw not nigh thither, verse 5. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he's afraid to look upon God. So Moses is going, he sees the bush, and he's like, whoa, wait a minute. Oh, wait, that's different. I'm going to go check this out. And as he goes, he finds out this is the Lord. And this whole, it's like the next, was it, chapter and a half, almost two chapters is the conversation with him and God at the bush. And there's other issues that we're going to unpack from that in another message. But I think it's neat that he, he has this burning bush encounter with God that makes a difference for the rest of his life. Because God calls him. God reveals himself to him. God says, in this whole conversation, the part of the exchange is, he gets to know God more. Even though I've been saved since I was five and went to Bible college and all that, I'm like, I just want to know God more. I'll never exhaust him. And that's what we want to do. I want to know God more. And when you're in a quiet or desert place, in your life, like that's a good time to get to know God more. And so, in this moment, he's getting God's revealing himself to Moses. 
Moses has, a, there's a bunch of, there's another dialogue there, but part of the thing was, Moses, what am I going to tell them your name is? And he says, you tell them I am that I am. You tell the children, you go say, say that I am sent you. You see, the Egyptian gods would be like, I am the god of the frogs. I am the god of the Nile. They had all these different gods. And God tells Israel, like, tell them that I am, it's basically saying, I'm self-existent. I am the self-existent one. The self-existent one's the one talking to you. That's the God of your fathers. And the self-existent, eternal, uncreated first cause of all causes is the one you're talking to. And that's the one you're getting to know. And that's the one who, I'm the one who's telling you to go to send, uh, to, to deliver my people out of Egypt. He got to know God more. He got to know how big God is in that sense, in in the the magnitude of God. His worship becomes valuable, gets reacquainted with God, more attuned because he's detached from the hustle and bustle of Egypt and in a boring, plain old desert. But he finds a non-boring God. Sorry for that dumb word. God's not boring. If we think God's boring, we reveal our ignorance. He's, so then his worship, he has this worship experience, and then he works. Worship and then work. That's how it should be in our life. That I, I First I worship God, and then I go to work for God. First I want to know God, and then I can know other things. I want to get to know God, the God who created the rest of the world and the people therein, so that I can go deal with that rest of the world and the people therein. Knowing God is priority. Worshiping God is first. Right? I mean, that's what Moses is doing. He's not ready to go into Egypt until he's ready to meet the God who is going to empower him to deliver those people from Egypt. There he is at the burning bush. And he learns to fear God. The Bible says, look, at, look what it says in chapter 6. Pardon me, chapter 3 at the end of verse 6. He hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Isn't this amazing? Watch this. To be honest, I'm, I'm, I meant my dumb. I can't imagine that. Why? I don't. I don't know what I've hid my face from, except like a, something sinful. You know what I mean? I don't know. I'm trying to think. Or, or I mean, it's a, 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 the sun, or you know. But I don't think he's hiding it because of the brightness. There's something of God's character. He's like, whoa. He was afraid to look upon God. Wow. He's, he learns, here's the, here's the th- point, he's worshiping God. He learns God is to be feared. God is to be re- deeply feared and respected. At the same time, you can know him and love him, be secure in his love through Jesus Christ. But he's like, I, he learns to fear God. And that way, he's like, and then he realized that God's on his side. That way, when he goes marching up to this leader, Pharaoh has all this power. It's not that big of a deal. Why? He's already got the most difficult person of regards to fear on his side. Nah, Pharaoh's not much compared to that. Again, the point is, I got to learn to fear God And then the fear of man will kind of have its place, which is kind of down here. 
We fear man too much and we fear God so little. We do, you can tell by our lifestyle. You're not afraid to use His name in vain. You're not afraid to break His commandment. Not that we try not, but something I don't care about sinning. I don't care about using His name. And you don't fear God. Moses, worshiping God, he learns to fear God. And then he goes from there. And I'm telling you, this, even though it's just a moment, maybe this one day, it prepared him. It was a, it was a valuable desert find, that bush. And so I guess what, try to relate quickly. I'm in desert spot. Don't undervalue relationships. Don't undervalue waiting. Don't undervalue your work. Don't undervalue worship. It could be, again, things that you would otherwise not find outside of the desert. Are you in a desert spot? I hope this helps us. I mean, I'm, I'm just... We're going through Moses. We're trying to compare ourselves to him. God put him in there for a reason, not just for the Jews to know kind of the source of their government. But it's written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of those same scriptures, might have hope. 